The news of the passing of Sir Roger Moore has left me shaken, not stirred. Radio, a constantly changing art form. Marconi. Lakehurst, New Jersey. All the humanity. The Mercury Theater. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. The New World Order. Hi, this is Casey Kasem. From that first broadcast, a medium that has been proved. Home. Trim, winnow, bonsai, and trunes, and deposited here today, ready to be moistened with the watering can of evolutionary jewel. This is the Dennis Miller Show. Am <laughs> I pretty? Welcome to the Blackcast, another one of our fun episodes celebrating a decade since the launch of the Dennis Miller Show. And we're doing that this week with one of our favorite guests from the old show, Jonathan Honig, who, in addition to being a capitalist pig, and that is not an insult, that is his organization, capitalistpig.org, he also has a book that he's going to tell us about. The book is called The Pit, Photographic Portrait of the Chicago Trading Floor. And we'll talk to him in a moment, but before we do that, let's do some business. Make sure that you follow me, Christian Blatt, on Twitter and Instagram, at ChristianDMZ. And then once you've done that, make sure that you adequately follow The Blackcast. And how do you do that? Well, you go on Facebook and you like The Blackcast, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. On Twitter, we're at Blackcast, once again, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. And of course, Blackcast.com. Okay, with all that out of the way, let's move on to our special guest. Joining me now from CapitalistPig.com, a money manager and Fox News contributor, Jonathan Honig on Twitter, at JonathanHonig.com. Jonathan, great to talk to you. It's been a while. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm happy to be with you and uh, to reconnect. Thank you, Christian. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, look, we uh, obviously met over the years when you would be a guest on the Dennis Miller Show, but I still, I still follow you on Twitter, so I feel like we keep in touch. I think that's the world we live in. <laughs> And now you see what somebody's up to on Twitter, and obviously, you know, as I said, you're a Fox News contributor. So somehow, you're the show that you do, at least you did up until recently. I, I don't know. I assume are you still on cashing in on Saturdays? No, I'm not. Okay. I'm not on cashing in anymore on Fox Business, but I'm doing a lot of work with Fox. Excuse me, on Fox News, but I'm doing a lot of work with Fox Business. I'm on with Neil Cavuto and sure. Kennedy and Trish Regan, so um, definitely well, getting busy over there. Just something to do probably with the with the time difference is that when you were on that show Saturday morning, I always saw you when I was at the gym, you know, so I, you you helped me through my workout. So uh, thank you. I, I have probably shed a pound or two because uh, I was watching you while I was on the treadmill. So, uh, but again, we haven't actually spoken in ages. And look, there's a lot of things going on in the world that we can talk about. But what I'm really sure. interested in talking to you about, at least to start, is this book that you have that is called The Pit. And, I mean, there's a lot that I can say about it, but why don't you just sort of give the log line, like they say in Hollywood, kind of a summary as to what the book is, and we'll go from there. I have always been absolutely fascinated by trading, by buying and selling, especially the old-fashioned way done down here in Chicago uh, on the trading floor that you've always seen throughout the years. And The Pit was actually written over 100 years ago. It was, a, it was the, one of the best-selling books in 1903, and it's all about a very wealthy, successful guy, a speculator by the name of Curtis Jadwin, who gets a taste for the markets and starts buying and selling and trading. And his thought is, you know, it's just some money on the side, and you know, I'm, 
I, I want to be aggressive. I want to take some risk. And he likes so many people, and I think anyone who's ever traded one share of stock can relate. He gets caught in and caught up in really the thrill of trading, the, the gambling aspect of, of you will. And uh, that ultimately ends to his, his downfall. But it is this wonderful old story, and it's a fable, if you will, that's been republished and repurposed along with, I think, some of the most beautiful images of the trading floor you've ever seen. So it's an old story updated in a really visual new format that's going to be relevant to anyone who's ever thought about trading a single share. Yeah, and uh, I'm definitely, I mean, like you said, there are beautiful photographs in here that really capture, you know, obviously there's so many different ranges of emotion in some of the same single photographs, you know, and you attribute it to being like gambling, and it reminds me of any time I've ever been at the sports book in Vegas on a, a Sunday afternoon during the NFL. You know, you have people who are ecstatic, but then they, you know, they kick a field goal instead of a touchdown, and then people are just, you know, tearing things up, and they're like, oh my god, I got a five-hour drive home home now you know and it's just it's just any time that you have people you know betting on different things you know horse track it's the same thing it's like some people are very happy and then some of these people a lot less so and uh the book does a great job of capturing that uh let's kind of backtrack though the book itself as you said 1903 that is not 2003 that is 114 years ago talk a little bit about this book written by frank norris and he passed away at the age of 32, I think it says in the intro. And first of all, even in 1903, that seems awful young to pass away, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. The human, American life spans were shorter. Human life spans were shorter back then. But yeah, he, he passed away just as this book, which was actually, Christian, was the second in a trilogy. So he was following, he was a, a successful author in the early part of the 20th century, as you said, late part of the 19th century who was chronicling the story of wheat. You know, and the story of wheat is so synonymous with the story of the American frontier. His first book was called The Octopus, and that chronicled essentially the growing of the wheat. His second book was called The Pit, and all about essentially how the wheat came to market and how it became merchandised and, and traded and, and made into a, a financial commodity and the impact that the pit had. And and he, he died just as, as you said, as this book was coming out, it went out to be a, a huge bestseller. Um, but I think, I think it really capsules, and you, you said it's, we talked a bit about kind of the analogies to the gambling and the thrill of it. And the thing is that back in Norris's time, and even now, you know, the, the pit in the market is a place. You know, we, we think that prices kind of just pop out of nowhere, whether it's a stock or a, a sports bet or anything else like that. And you know, the, the thing that's so special about this is that for, as you said, over 100 years, the, the pit has literally always been a, a spot of earth, um, you know, a, a, a place that has this power where the numbers determined right there and, and certainly here and the floor in Chicago would reverberate out. Norris writes about this, reverberate out to, to London and to Africa and to Australia because everyone is ultimately influenced by the price of wheat. And that's why cornering it and being a big speculator and being successful in the wheat market was always more about just even making money. It was really about holding the world in your hands. And that's ultimately what gets our, our hero into some trouble. But, uh, you know, this is, this is a story that is as age old as markets themselves. And I think that's why it's so fresh even now today. Yeah, that's the interesting thing as I flip through it. You know, you contrast the text from 1903 with these photographs that, you know, a lot of them seem to be through the 80s and into the mid-90s. And 
what is it about the experience that you know, obviously the worlds are so different you know in 1903 and even even the 70s or 80s what is some of the common threads that you see that make that story fit so well alongside these images i'll quote from frank norris here you know he says a man gets into this game and into it and into it and before you know he can't pull out and he don't want to next he gets his nose scratched and he hits back to make up for it and this just hits in the air he loses his balance and down he goes you know this is it's again i mean anyone who's ever tried to trade their 401k or you know, held on to pets.com because they were sure it was going to go back up. These are, <laughs> nothing's changed. So even now, you know, there's not the active trading floor and it's not that physical, colorful circus that we've all seen. The, the emotions haven't, haven't uh, changed at all. And the emotions that we all feel with dealing with risk and dealing with uncertainty and being wrong, you know, being able to accept that you're wrong. I, I've done this professionally for a long time, Christian, as you know, and where people always go wrong in this in this business, and our hero befall, uh, falls to this as well, is they they won't admit that they're wrong. So even when the market starts, you know, starts to go against him, he he insists on being right. He doubles down and makes every bad decision in the book because he's so caught up with the emotions, and we've all felt that at one point. And by the way, the the hero in the book, I, I didn't mention this at first, Curtis Jadwin, what a great character name, you know, especially of that era, you know, you're just like, you know, it's right up there with like Gordon Gecko, you know, like oh, sure. yeah, Curtis Jadwin. And, you know, I, I mean, I think that that name would probably be perfect for like, you know, an old time robber baron, you know, somebody that had <laughs> cartoons drawn about them. But it's, I don't know, it's just so fitting. And as somebody who is sort of a novice, just explain in very simple terms, the difference between what happens at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ, which we kind of tend to see more often, mostly because CNBC and, and Fox Business are based out of that city. Sure. Well, I mean, the, the stock exchanges are places, obviously, you're, you're trading shares of stocks. So you're buying and selling shares of a company. But, you know, in the, the futures exchanges and the trading pits, which are, you know, their most visible are literally bets on the future. So I'll, again, I'll quote from from uh, Frank Norris here and from the pit. He they write, quote, they call it buying and selling down there on LaSalle Street, but it is simply betting, betting on the condition of the market weeks, even months in advance. You bet wheat goes up, I bet it goes down. Those fellows in the pit don't own the wheat; they never even seen it. And oh, the fine, promising young men I've seen wrecked, absolutely and hopelessly wrecked and ruined by speculation. It's as easy to get into as going across the street. They make 300, 500, even $1,000 sometimes in a couple of hours without so much as raising a finger. Think what that means to a boy of 25 who's doing clerk work at 75 a month. Why, it would take him 10 years to save 1,000 and he's made it in a single morning. First thing you know, he's thrown up honest humdrum positions oh i've seen it a thousand times he's lost the taste the very capacity for legitimate business keep it away from it my boy keep it away from it once it grips you and draws you in the nearer you to the end you get so it's uh <laughs> it's it's that colorful as you said yeah. turn of the century writing that is uh is so fresh even today 
You know, I can't even imagine what a thousand dollars was like in 1903. I mean, here we are, well past a century later. I've never had a morning where I made a thousand dollars. You know, and uh, just the idea—that's that, like beyond life-changing stuff. And yeah, I can, it's so obvious what the allure is. And I mean, like you said, it's gambling. And I have to figure that someone that's been at it as long as you have, you probably get together with other people who are you know money managers, and you probably have your your war story about like oh this great thing that i yeah i completely gambled on and also your this was a rough one i thought it was a can't miss are there some of those moments that are sort of you know just so big that you tend to like to share those with other people in the industry i i was that young kid i mean i think that's what i love so much about the pit i was that young kid who you know was fascinated by this and started at age 21 or 22 and i think it you know, at one point early on, I certainly had many, many losses, but I remember that first time I made, I don't know, three, four, five thousand dollars in one day, and look, that still is a shit ton of money, but back then, <laughs> believe me, it was, it was, it was, it was an enormous sum, and, you know, Frank Norris writes about it, you know, that feeling that lady luck is on your shoulder, and maybe you've just had it, we've gone to Vegas, and you've won a bunch of hands, you've been up a few hundred dollars, you have that feeling of invincibility, of of impenetrability, of of really being like a god, and I think maybe over the years that's when I first started learning that that's when you know you're in trouble uh, when you start feeling invincible. Um, so <laughs> some of the lessons I've learned. Uh, I, my joke is that you know you don't become smarter, you just become more numb. And you know where the gentleman in the pit is profiled, you know he he lets trading in the market take over his whole life. It ruins his marriage. It ruins his business. It ruins his savings. He's up all night, you know, frantically uh, uh, going over to himself, wheat, 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 because he's obsessed with the right. price of wheat. Um, and that's one of the things you have to learn is that the market can be part of your life, but it can't be all of your life. And yeah, it's ultimately you know, what leads to his demise. And in the summary of the book, it actually says that the Chicago futures market, the quote is a fascination quote, worse than liquor, worse than morphine. And, you know, I mean, because obviously those, those are, of course, immediate highs. But this kind of success is a high that propels you forward for months, weeks, years to come, really, if you have that kind of especially early success, you know, and I, I can see how it would obviously be so appealing but and, and there's a line. There's a line. I mean, 80 years later, uh, there was a line from Wall Street. You might remember the movie where the old guy says to the young Bud Fox, "You're on a roll, kid. Enjoy it while it lasts, because yeah. it never does." <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about the photographs in the book. What did you sort of go through? How did that process of selecting the photos come about for you, Jonathan? Sure. Well, I mean, the especially growing up here in Chicago, you know, the visualization of the markets was always expressed. And I think for many of us nationwide, but by the faces of these guys on the floor. And when you'd see markets rallied, you'd actually see, you know, the ju the jubilant floor traders buying and selling. And, you know, they, they are the, the visual representation of markets, of trading, of the economy in many ways. So I was always just fascinated, especially as a young trader myself, you know, you're seeing the moves of the market and the moves of the economy played out in these, um, you know, scrappy, often angry, oddball, uh, interesting gunslingers. You know, the, the floor traders are really the, the heroic and I think oftentimes tragically heroic gunslingers of the financial markets. So it was a joy to go through these old archives and find these 
these pictures. And, you know, the, the glory days really were the 70s and the 80s, which happened to be my, my youth and my childhood. And that's when the pits were for rocking and rolling. And here in Chicago, it employed something like 10,000 people on the floors of the exchanges. Now it's only about 500. Um, so going through and finding these just totally vivid, amazing images of um, those rock and roll years uh, was, uh, was a lot of fun. And they really do make the book. Uh, I think you'll see that at the pit, uh, Chicago.com. Yeah, that's uh, people can kind of get at least a little taste at the pit, Chicago.com. And I guess the full title is the pit photographic portrait inside the Chicago board of trade. The way that the book ends, you sort of talk about documenting the ending of an era. And obviously it's still there, you know, but as you just said, it's about 500 people as opposed to 5,000. Talk about what led to sort of that changing from the, as you said, rock and roll era to the, I don't know. I mean, did you go from rock and roll to the, to the Partridge family or, or how would you characterize <laughs> it now? Well, the, you know, technology, like it changed the entire world, changed the, the markets and in the mid 90s and in the early 2000s the computers really started to, to come in that's actually when i started getting in, i started on the floor in 1996 and even by then you were starting to see technology take place in in the marketplace now the floor is officially closed in 2015 so christian as you said the last uh, section of the book are my own photographs that i took documenting these final few traders these last uh, embodiments of Frank Norris's best prose about this glorious place, the pit that existed for 170 years. And so that's that. These last men, some women, but mostly men you see, are really those last generation of almost 170 years of floor traders here in Chicago that are now really gone for good. And I, yeah, I mean, obviously, when people sort of realize that they can become what at least lay people like myself refer to as the day traders who can just kind of sit there and do that. My father-in-law does that to some extent now that he's retired, you know, and he just kind of keeps an eye on things and, you know, calls uh, his money manager based on what's going on, what he, what he sees on Fox business, that sort of thing. And obviously in the early days of the internet, the idea of like, Oh yeah, I can just do this myself. I guess that really ate, sort of ate into the way it had been up until that point. Sure. Well, I mean, Computers ended the pit in far, as far as its physical form, and basically in the early 2000s, just like in all across the world, computers started coming in and really lessened the need for people to stand there and buy and sell. They finally closed the physical pits in 2015, so the last section of the book are my own photographs documenting these final people, these final physical traders that would put on jackets, come down and scream every day for seven hours on the floors in Chicago. So I think that's what's so fascinating is even though the physical pits aren't there anymore, we are all Curtis Jodwin. We're all these emotional people who are infected with this thrill of buying and selling, even though we're not standing on the floor anymore in Chicago. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing, you know, something that you said earlier, you, you mentioned you don't get better at this game, you just get more numb. I had actually seen you tweet that at someone. I looked it up while we were talking. Uh, somebody talks about turning down buying AOL early on, and uh, that was, you know, your response that these are all people that when you're the people there on the floor, you have to get very numb, but it probably, this guy who I assume just does it from home well you remember you know turning down aol you remember like what the hell am i going to buy into apples for you know not understanding what these things are that are being presented to you obviously people still plenty of people like yourself do what 
what happened on the floor it's just not that environment i mean it's it's a much more drawn out process you know i mean your website uh, capitalistpig.org you know it makes it very clear you know that uh, not just anybody gets to invest with you guys you only it's only available to accredited investors and you know that obviously means that it, it, we're talking really big money if people are getting in touch with capitalist pig right well yeah i mean that's my investment minimum is a hundred thousand dollars that's i think i'll it's it's quite a bit of money, uh, quite a lot of money for anyone. But you know, Christian, what what you alluded to, I mean, the the guy who tweeted me that he remembers turning down AOL, you know, when he had the chance. I mean, that's if you're going to be in this business, you have to get used to that. If you're going to trade, you have to get used to being wrong. You know, the best investors, I think, that's the thing. One of the things I learned from the pit is that the best investors aren't the ones who are always right. And the real trick isn't always picking the winners, but being able to control the lo- the losses. Um, and so many of the faces of anguish you feel you see in the pages of oh, the yeah. book Pit are um, you know are, are people who cannot control their losses. I mean, uh, Jadwin says at one point, you know, the wheat has cornered me. It's holding. It's like holding a wolf by the ears. Bad to hold on to, but worse to let go. I don't know the whole thing. It's. Obviously, the the entire human condition is on display in this book. And, you know, anybody who, you know, look, I, I have very limited retirement savings. And even those things, you know, I'll look at it and I go, uh, oh, OK, so I barely made anything this year. Uh, all right. And, you know, it brings me to, you know, I talk about layman questions. I have always called this an IRA, but now I hear people calling it an IRA. Are they both accepted? I know this is a dumb question. I realize that. But... <laughs> You know, I get it all the time, and I'm like, am I being corrected because I don't say IRA? And then I start to think, am I wrong? Is it not an IRA? It is absolutely an IRA and an IRA, (sighs) and it's your money. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) That's the thing. We make too much of a thing of, oh, it's this is my uh, IRA, and this is retirement, and this is my savings. It's all the same pocket. It's all your money. And it all goes to the same place. So, um, and I think you know, you talk about the f- feeling of oh, I only made you know ten dollars this year, hundred dollars this year. You know, you're too young, I think, Christian, to probably remember the years where you were making major money. Or even look at that IRA lately. That IRA lately. I mean, it's the markets are at their all-time highs. So people are feeling a little more rich than they have for quite a long time. I mean, I put the minimum, this was like 2000 I put like $2,000 into it. And it, let's just say it's not worth that much more than that now. And I'm just like, I, I don't I don't know what I should have been doing. I've sort of combined things. And I just look and I'm like, all right, well, one day that money will be there and it'll at least be more. You know, there were obviously, there were years where I was like, hey, didn't that thing used to be worth $2,200? Why is it worth $1,400? You know, so there would be things like that that uh, were infuriating. But then, of course, the way I look at it is like, well, I don't want to put more money in that. I already lost some. So you definitely have to have that kind of a taste for it. I'm very small stakes when it comes to actual gambling in Las Vegas. I like to, you know, play some bets in the morning, sit around the sports book, maybe a table here, table there. But, you know, I'm only in for like $100 a day. If I lose $100 before lunch, I'm like, well, I guess I got to go to the pool now you know so but, but, all right but so sports but i have to say i've never been a sports book gambler but certainly you've had that those complete swings from unbelievable elation of my team's gonna win i'm gonna make whatever it is ten dollars a thousand dollars to 
complete despair. I mean, the that's yeah. that's the pit in a nutshell of you know a four a four half or two halves of a football game. Yeah, well, and you know, I mean, I'll I'll what I'll do a lot. You know, if it's in the summer, there's no football. I'll do like three team baseball parlays, but I'll do a few of them, and I'll have picked some teams right, but they're not on the right ticket. So I'm like, oh, I was kind of smart. I just didn't divide my knowledge very well. And you know, look, this is very these are very small amounts, and I'm like, we'll see that just reinforces for me that I don't really, you know, I don't have the the knack for it. But I'm glad that people like you and the people in the book do because uh, it's fascinating to read about. You know, other than like one legendary run at a craps table, I don't think that there's there's a lot of great stories that I can tell with regards to that. But, uh, you know, the book is fascinating to look at and just this notion that these words from 1903 still reverberate. The book, as we've said, is called The Pit, and it's a photographic portrait inside the Chicago Board of Trade. Uh, I didn't know if there were it was anything else that you wanted to read from it, because you had read a couple different things, but I wasn't sure if there was something you wanted to get in before we move on for just a couple minutes to talk about some things in the news right now. No, let's talk news. Let's talk news. Thank you. All right. Well, one of the things that I find is constantly in the news, every day there's, a, there's another instance, the airline industry is not doing a great job in terms of their public relations and you know in some cases it seems like they're right you know there was the story about the family who had put their two-year-old in a seat that they bought for an older child and then they got dragged off the plane the the optics are terrible on that but when you boil it down to you're like well they did actually do something wrong but does that affect the bottom line you know at all that there's that the doctor that got dragged off the the plane we're having videos of people fighting you know fist fighting on planes is there any real economic impact or do they just need to smooth it over a little bit and people are going to still fly United and Delta just as easily in a couple months and not even think about it? People need to frankly stop bit- stop bitching. <laughs> That's Truly, true. The fact that everyone flies is a miracle that would be un you know thinkable 50 years ago. I tried explaining the concept to Frank Norris before he passed away, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's, it's exactly right. Yeah. And it's the fact that you can get that that air travel is so cheap and it's dirt cheap christian is is a miracle um you know the cheaping it's flying now is cheaper than it was 20 years ago you know even when you include the bag fee and the change fee or everything else that you know people love to 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 complain about so look there's there's certainly bad optics in some of what we've seen there's a lot of examples to that i don't think that's necessarily confined to just the air air industry but the fact is is people's satisfaction when flying is as high as it's been in 20 years the cost of flying is as low as it's been in 20 years so i to me the air industry is something like the weather we all have it in common we all have to bitch about it now and then but we're really thankful ultimately for it and i i just think there's never been a better time travel has never been safer it's never been cheaper it's never been more available if people want to be bitching about air travel truly christian they should be bitching at the government because they're the ones that are keeping the the uber of air travel you know the the types of uh, charter flights that could really improve the experience they're the ones that keep that off the table for for so many of us now, I'm not asking you for an, a, an official tip, an official pointer or something, but when something happens like that video of the doctor getting dragged off of United and it starts to go viral and everybody's talking about it, is that a good time to uh, maybe 
add United to your portfolio because you know people all of a sudden get scared and you're able to buy low, you know, not even low, but a little bit lower on something that you know is going to go back up. United Airlines isn't going anywhere just because they mishandled the situation with a doctor. I, I think they, they often tend to be much more news stories than market stories right. because you're absolutely right, Christian. I mean, that. It's, it's the type of thing that we love to talk about, but ultimately really has no long-term impact on, you know, uh, any company's bottom line. Now, certainly, if a company abuses its consumers, it's not going to be a business for very long. But, you know, we're talking about, I don't know what the numbers are, but hundreds of thousands of people fly successfully every day. These, these incidents are bad on YouTube, but they're just not emblematic of the industry. And that's why I think you're right. I mean, the long term, I haven't looked at the airline stocks in a long time, but they've done very well. Yeah. Thankfully, they've done very well. I mean, uh, you know, we're, you're able to you know, get on a flight now like you used to be able to get on a bus. That's just an achievement that isn't going to stop just because of one bad video. Yeah, and I think it goes back to what you were saying, that airfare is so much more affordable than it was, you know, even 10, 20 years ago, especially 20 years ago. And I think, you know, everybody, well, not everybody, but so many people use those discount websites, you know, Orbitz, cheap tickets, those sort of things. And when you're looking and they're comparing the prices, if you see a time and a cost that appeals to you, you're not going to go, oh, wait, but that's United. They were mean to a doctor. You're not going to, you know, you're going to be like, wow, I'll save $200 if I take that United flight. Done. You know, I don't think that it really has the long term. You know, sure, there are things that they could do that would have that kind of poison the brand. But I don't think we're seeing that in any of these recent stories. You know, I, I agree. And even the people who complain about air travel, first of all, what most people complain about is the TSA. Because when you say, well, would you like a bigger seat? Of course, everyone would like a bigger seat. Sure, but are yeah. you willing to pay for it? I mean, the fact is, is most people aren't willing to pay even for first class as it is now because they'd much prefer to be maybe a little bit inconvenienced with a slightly smaller seat than they'd like, but have the seat only cost 150 or $200. So listen, you can get your big comfy seat if you want, but most people aren't willing to cough up the 1000 or $1,200, and I think for very good reason. Uh, you know, put your headphones on, uh, watch a movie, and before you know it, you're in L.A. Now, I have an almost two-year-old son, so I do not fly very often anymore. But, uh, you know, <laughs> at some point, I'm sure, and all my family's back east, too. But, uh, so, you know, they can come this way. But uh, I, I haven't, you know, dealt with it in so long. But, you know, the times that I've flown recently, I'm like, it's, it's better than you expect it to be. You know, once you come to terms with, you know what, they're not going to give you a meal. And let's be honest. How many people loved those meals that you used to get? I'm not talking about the first class exactly. meal. I'm talking about the coach meal. It was always like, oh, no, I don't want that. I'd rather just buy a sandwich at Subway or whatever and take it on the plane with me. You know, I control my own destiny a little bit better in that respect. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't get it. You hear, like you said, there's a lot of whining. But that's the American way. We like to whine about so many things these <laughs> days, you know. it's Yeah, it, I mean, I... I, I'm thankful that we don't have to we don't have to uh, to you know beat the dead horse. But you know I'm frustrated by the politicians. I think sure. you know who who set all the rules for these airlines. You know airlines are you'd like to think that there's these unregulated you know shysters you know screwing everyone left and right. I mean air travel is one of the most regulated industries out there. Maybe just behind financial services. Sure. But you know you hear these Congress people lecturing air travel executives. Oh. 
here's how you should be doing it, and maybe you're making too much profit here. You know, they're the ones, I think, who whip the public up because the public say, boy, you know, Chuck Schumer says we need a air travels bill of rights, and he's right. I've got, I've got rights as an airline. You know, they, it's like fix Amtrak. You know, fix the debt. Fix the stuff you have already taken responsibility for, and then come lecture American Airlines about how much their ticket to LaGuardia should be. Right. No, exactly. You know, this sort of brings up something that I'd kind of been thinking about. And, you know, here we are. It's May. It's 2017. And we're at the point now we're a few months into the Trump administration. And I'm not asking about personal preference at all. That's actually not the point of the question. The question is, how much different are we financially and in terms of the various markets? if we had Hillary Clinton as president right now or the fact that we have Donald Trump? Because my impression is, you know what? It's not really that much different when it comes to some of these decisions in terms of whether or not you're able to make money. I feel like you would be just as easily able to make money with either one of them as president. But I could be wrong, and I don't understand. As I said, I don't even know whether it's an IRA or an IRA. So that's why I ask someone who knows better, is there a huge difference? Are there certain sectors that are doing better because it's President Trump? Or would it really be about the same if we had President Hillary Clinton? Well, people vote for any number of reasons. My interest in a politician, Christian, I think should never be about, you know, who's going to make the market go off. But sure. Who, who's going to protect my freedom? You know, we know through induction over decades and, and hundreds of years that the most free economies are always the most successful. So the most free countries are always the most successful. So I think in evaluating any politician, the question shouldn't be, well, who's going to be necessarily the best for my portfolio? Because we know the answer, the person who protects my my freedoms. And, you know, the, the president, I know, is, you know, likes to take a lot of credit for, you know, jobs numbers and economic numbers that he thought were complete BS under the previous administration. <laughs> yes. I, I think it's impossible to tell, Christian, to be honest, you know, I mean, frankly, when, when Obama was elected, all my clients said, sell stocks, get out. Obama's going to crash the market. And the market killed it under Obama. So I, I just don't think you can, you know, look at who's president and say, here's how the market should or, or would or, or could act. Um, yeah. You, you think a little more long term than that. No, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think that there was like a there was like a little I don't even want to I was going to use the word rumble. There was like a little bit of a tremor you know, after election day, because people were a little bit concerned. And then all of a sudden people were making, you know, just as much money as before, if not more. So I guess that anytime there's a change, there's sort of a, well, what does this mean? And then people feel it out and they, they figure out how to work it. And, you know, look, it's it's business and you just know how to roll with it. And whoever it is, you know what the regulations are, you know what the, the things are that are worth buying into. And uh, it comes down to other issues being more important to you. I definitely agree with that, you know. But it's funny because when you were saying, you know, how President Trump says that the numbers didn't mean anything under President Obama. I'm sure President Obama said the same thing before President Bush, etc., you know, on and on, all the way back, all the way back to uh, the presidents of uh, Frank Norris's era. But um, one thing that I'm wondering also, as we're talking sort of about the more modern day, is, you know, obviously the business side of the healthcare industry, the House barely passed that bill, which goes on to the Senate, who knows what happens. But when these things happen... 
is it good for the companies, you know, and I'm not even talking about people investing in the companies. Is it good for healthcare providers when there's these changes or does it, nobody just know? And it's like, well, we don't even know what this is going to mean. You know, just working under the assumption that it gets implemented the way it was written, which of course, nothing ever leaves the house and passes the Senate exactly the way it was written. It's more of a hypothetical exercise. What do you think? Do you think that health insurance industry that just were like, I think we're happy, but I don't know if we're happy. We have to really take a look at this. No, no one should be happy about government being involved in healthcare at all. Right. Period. I mean, take take it out of healthcare for a minute, Christian. Let's just imagine it was your cell phone plan, and and we were having to debate now about what your plan was going to be next year or six months from now. It would be pretty inconvenient. I mean, it would be what what is it going to cost? You know, is it going to be national? Or, you know, am I going to be charged X for, for going overseas? I mean, it would be impossible for you to plan your life, even if you were unsure about your, your cell bill next year or two years or five years out. So, you know, this is this is endemic of government involvement in healthcare. period. We're always left wondering, you know, what's going to be next? Is it what's going to be covered? What's not going to be covered? How much is it going to cost? Where is it going to be available? I don't think I think anyone with even a modicum of reason shouldn't be breathing a sigh of relief, because in my opinion it's like meet the new boss same as the old boss who've just got a different set of bureaucrats now dictating what insurance companies have to do how investors need to allocate their money and uh you know i think charles krauthammer in this case is right i mean i called it in 2008 and 2009 that we're quickly barreling towards complete single payer uh, in this country and that's going to be good for no one near term or certainly long term either I think the comparison to your cell phone plan is, is kind of a, a great one because it takes the emotional aspect out of it. When you just look at it from a financial aspect, you know, the government says, oh, by the way, you have to pay twice as much for texts now, but, you know, we're we're going to give you, you know, like 20% less on data, you know, and they start carving it up in all these ways. And you're like, well, I don't even know what I pay now, you know, and exactly. and I think that that's really what's happening, you know. I mean, even before any news of this, I just knew I was paying more for healthcare, and I was just like... I just know it's expensive. It's kind of always been expensive. And, uh, you know, I, I think it, it obviously affects, affects people on a very emotional level. I discounted it for the sake of, of a moment. So I guess that that's really what it comes down to is that it, it's so easy to politicize because you're able to say, like, we're saving children. No, no, no. You're hurting children. We're saving children, you know. <laughs> and it's like, I saved more kids than you last year, you know. And it's just... Listen, you know. Isn't there that, that funny clip from The Simpsons, you know, that the old lady from, from the church is always like, but what about the children? <laughs> yes, exactly. You just cannot lose by invoking the children. No, no, no. You, you absolutely can't. And, uh, you know, while I'm speaking to you in our final minutes here, I, as uh, somebody who I, I actually had the occasion to meet at least once or twice, and I know that you know about the most important things that go on in Chicago. So I have to ask you the very important question. Is Lou Malnati's the best pizza in Chicago, or is there better? <laughs> this is really hotly contested. I'm almost even afraid to go on the record on this issue. But can I just give my top three? Yes, I think uh, that's fine. I don't. I don't want to pigeonhole you into something that you know will get you a lot of negative publicity. So go right my, ahead. I mean, uh, Lou Malnati's is delicious. I also like Paisanos, and basically, some of the guys from Lou Malnati's took some elements of the recipe, I hate to say it, and st start of their own. So Paisano's is also killer. Pequod's is glorious Chicago wow. pizza. 
And I'll just put in a plug for Flo and Santos as well, which is my Southside favorite. So now, now Pequods, I've never even heard of, and unfortunately, I'm a little bit out of the radio game these days. You know, more in the podcast, online streaming, that sort of thing. I don't get to have the annual visits to Chicago, so I don't know the next time I'm going. But I'm jotting all of those down, <laughs> and whenever it is, I'll have to tweet you at Jonathan Honig, and I'll, I will give you my personal ranking. Oh, uh, and. Hey. And, you, you know, you somehow know, I'll figure out a way oh. to squeeze in time for Al's Italian beef and or Portillo's or, you know, all the places. I don't know. All I ever do when I'm there is, is eat. And, and, you know, isn't that, isn't that, I mean, where else, it's only in Western capitalist countries can you say that. That's I mean, true. it's only, no one in, in Cuba and in North Korea is just you know, uh, uh, having such difficulty figure out what awesome pizza they're going to be able to buy for <laughs> pennies. You know, yeah. this type of abundance is only possible in capitalist Western countries and economies. So, um, you know, whatever you're for, you've got to be for capitalism. You've got to be for yeah. freedom. Um, you've got to be for uh, those ideals because that's, that's what that's what our lives depend on. Yeah, look, there's a there's a lot of reasons why you can be proud to be an American, but that's got to be on the list. You know, I don't even want to put that as number one. Like you, you didn't want to rank the number one pizza place. But this <laughs> is definitely up there. This gave me one final thought that I was just wondering. You know, you hear a lot about, you know, specifically McDonald's losing money. You hear about the fast food because people are suddenly at least trying to be more health conscious. When you look at what they eat, they're not actually, but they feel like they are. How is that realm doing the food industry? Is is it smart to be like, you know, the next Whole Foods or something like that, you know, to be a Trader Joe's where you're just like, oh yeah, you know, this is this is locally sourced organic garbage that you're eating. It's not that garbage that came from a few states over. <laughs> is that really where the money seems to be right now? Or is it just something that'll pass and people will be like, you know what, I still love McDonald's, I still want it. Well, McDonald's has changed. I mean, you know, that stock's actually been doing great but the whole and i think one of the reasons why christian is that the the whole food service industry has changed to respond to the customer i mean the the, you know the customer knows what he or she wants and the 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 businesses had to change they've all whether it's corner bakery and mcdonald's they've all done away with the high fructose corn syrup and the i guess one of the i don't even know it's the gmo but you know they all become health conscious across the board and you know when McDonald's first opened, it was what basically burgers and fries. So much of their business now is coffee, is shakes, is salads, is all these other types of businesses. So they respond, and you know, if, it's like Gecko says, you know, if if you don't change, you get eliminated. Yeah. And uh, the comp- companies that thrive are the ones that continue to respond to their customers and give them what they want. So uh, no, I wouldn't count McDonald's out just yet. Yeah. No. And you know, I think back to you know when I was a kid growing up in in New York. It, it, you know, McDonald's always had the sign. I, I can't remember. I think you had 20 minutes to eat, but I think that they would kick you out after half an hour. But now they sort of turn them into almost like these hotel lobbies where you know there's plugs everywhere and there's Wi-Fi. And it's like if you want to spend a couple hours at McDonald's, go ahead. Look how comfortable they are now. Now. They have the flat screen TVs and they've definitely, like you said, they're really focused on putting the customer first. And I don't know. I mean, personally, I like that, you know, and like, don't just try and shove me out the door and put somebody else in the seat. You know, I'm probably going to spend more money if I'm there for a little while, you know, and I mean, you know, look, I live in Los Angeles. So anytime I go to a Starbucks, there's, you know, 15 people working on their screenplay. So obviously that business model works to some extent. And, you know, just sort of letting people be comfortable with your business in the emotional sense, but also physically like going into the building, having it be more comfortable. I 
definitely agree with you. And I think McDonald's, it's actually very impressive. Even if you don't eat McDonald's, just walk into one and, and just compare it to even... 10, 15 years ago, what they looked like. You know, they've definitely sort of reapproached the way they deal with the customer. That's what's, ex- I, know, I know we're short for time, but that's what's actually so exciting about retail right now. We're going to see the same transformation in retail that we've seen in, in media and then certainly in print over the last 15 and 20 years. All these malls with kind of the old, you know, the Macy's and the Lord and Taylor type stores are going to be reimagined as experiences. So, you know, you're seeing it now with Starbucks. They're not even off opening cafes anymore. They're opening these, what they used to be called, uh, you know, um, uh, flagship stores. When you go in, you can see the coffee being roasted. You can, you know, watch the skis being shined or the basketballs being stitched up. So retail is just going to get more and more exciting. And for anyone who's got a dollar in his pocket, it's a great time to be a consumer. You know, we keep we keep saying that we're going to go, but that's the beauty of the podcast because we keep steering the conversation towards other things and it, it makes me think of other things. When you're talking about the importance of selling the experience, I think that we see that most clearly on display in the concert industry, the live performance industry, because the record industry is pretty much non-existent anymore. You know, you don't get millions of dollars to take four years to you know make your new album. Nobody cares about your new album. Nobody's going to listen to your new album. So all the money really is building these new concert venues. I heard about a venue in Maryland that they have like a pool backstage now. So they're trying to make it even you know more comfortable for the artists to want to be there. And there's so much money uh, on concert tickets and upgrading some of these older venues is is really important. I mean, there's some amazing, you know, I've seen shows at great theaters in Chicago. Here in Los Angeles, there are, you know, what were at one point old movie houses that are very decent concert venues now. But when you see just how much money people spend for even your, your sort of mid-level acts, you're going to always spend a lot to see U2 or Madonna if she's out on tour. But there's just such a change to that industry. Wouldn't you say, Jonathan, that it's really about, we're not just giving them this band that they like. We're giving them the experience yeah i i i am i I am i hate crowds so i have to say i don't go to a lot of live shows but i love discovering bands online and then oftentimes just going and checking them out even if they aren't kind of the biggest or the the most well-known um i think you're right though christian i mean the the game is being upped all around, and uh, the experience for the consumer, you know, it just gets better and better. You know, I think about, you know, the old days. You had to, like, go to the CD store, the record store, hope you could find that one album. You know, if you like a, a band now or a, a performer, there's just this never-ending stream of information and contact. You can be with them, see them, interact with them. So, you know, it's you got to admit it. Things keep getting better. There was that wonderful commercial. I think it was LG. And you got to admit things keep get, getting better. Yeah. So as long as technology continues, we continue to be free. I think it's only going to go up and up. Yeah, and I mean, in terms of the access, that's a huge part of, of that industry because now so many of these artists they do the meet and greet and it's a thousand dollars if you want to meet the whole band or i know that the the band aerosmith it's like if you want to meet steven tyler it's this fee if you want uh, to meet joe perry it's this fee you want to meet the other guys well it's a lot less and it's three of them you know i'd so, rather those people i'd rather not meet i don't know it's, it's yeah. kind of i know no I, one cares but like you know sometimes you don't want to meet those idols because you realize yeah. they're just normal regular people <laughs> but if I ever get a chance to talk to someone like that, I don't want to do it because I got to, I had to spend a thousand dollars to do it. If you sort of have some kind of you know, sometimes I've gone to record signings. All you want to say sometimes is like, "Oh, thanks, big fan," then you move on. But then it's like, 
oh yeah, but you can have this experience. I'm like, I don't know that I need a picture of me and 10 other people with this band, 10 people that I don't know. You know, you sort of do like the cattle call photos and all that. I agree with you. There's something, you know, look, I'll certainly go and see a big artist, but I tend to like the bands that would play smaller venues. And since we're talking about it, are there any bands that you've found in the last few years that uh, you're excited about and that you want people to know more about? Or are you afraid that they're going to find out and then they're going to, you know, start playing at like the United Center and then you wouldn't want to go see them. <laughs> nah, I, I, I'm going through the archives. I let Pandora do my thinking now. Yeah. You know, leave, leave that to that. So, yeah. Well, that's the funny thing, too, is like I have. I don't know. I have a few thousand CDs. I don't, I buy very few anymore, but if I'm at my computer, I'm not going to go, you know, downstairs and get the CD out. I'm just like, well, all these albums are online. So I'm just going to go ahead and listen to it online. That's exactly why people don't spend money on music anymore. And that's why they have to sort of have these live experiences. It's good. We should want, we should want more. And you mentioned, you know, your podcast. I mean, you're, it's, you're, this is the future now. This is where, People are discovering ideas and new books and new bands and everything else. You know, the, the terrestrial radio is, is uh, it's like vaudeville. And, you know, with no insult to anyone who works on terrestrial radio. So, or or, or no insult to anyone who's still in vaudeville, by the way. We don't want to insult them. You know how emotional people are these days. I know. You've got a huge audience <laughs> among vaudevillian scholars. So I don't want to insult them. I'm so sorry. Yeah. And also, we're very big with barbershop quartets. So, you know, see, we, we really, we go for the less sought after demographics. But anyway. Anyway, Jonathan, I, I definitely agree, though. And, you know, this conversation we had, if this was on old-fashioned terrestrial radio, the conversation would have maybe been eight minutes. If we had done two segments, there probably would have been five minutes of commercials, would have completely disrupted the flow. People listening wouldn't enjoy it as much. And so this is great, you know, because people are like, I know Jonathan Honig. I see him on TV. I remember his name. And then, you know, they'll click on this and they'll be like, oh, wow, there's they really talked about this book. And by the way, because you are a capitalist pig, let's mention the book is The Pit, <laughs> Photographic Portrait Inside the Chicago Board of Trade. And, of course, our guest is Jonathan Honig, capitalistpig.com, at Jonathan Honig on Twitter. I follow you, so I think that's a good enough reason for other people to, to follow you, you know, and they can see what you're up to. Anyway, Jonathan, I really appreciate you taking so much time to chat with me about the book, which I really look forward to diving into a little bit more now that we've talked about it just actually flipping through it some more and, and reading the story no, understanding that it was in the context of 1903 i think will really sort of just add this other level to it you know as to if you or someone else had just written remembrances of the pit from the modern day i think the contrast just wouldn't be the same you know so i, I think that uh, it's a great idea and when you you emailed me about this i was very excited to get the chance to talk to you about it so thank you well thank you and and i follow you on twitter as well so i always enjoy your missives and look forward to continue to do that and your audience that's interested in looking uh checking out the project it's at thepitchicago.com so it's not just so it's thepitchicago.com and then believe it or not you can click on that link and then you'll be able to buy the book so you see that's america that's capitalism and that's what we like make it easy for people to buy something you know the fact that you can buy a book when you're reading about it on your phone now I don't know. I, 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 I'm glad that we don't have to I- explain these concepts to Mr. Norris. If we weren't going to be able to explain air travel, I don't want to explain the iPhone 7 to him, you know? <laughs> anyway, Jonathan, great to chat with you as always. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Christian. I'll t- I hope to talk to you soon. Oh, absolutely. Be well. All right. You too. And again, the book is The Pit. 
photographic portrait inside the Chicago Board of Trade. That was Jonathan Honig at Jonathan Honig. And our time has dwindled to practically nothingness. So for myself, Christian Blatt, at Christian DMZ, don't forget to follow at Blattcast, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. Like The Blackcast on Twitter. And, of course, BlackCast.com. This was a really fun show. Maybe a little shorter than we are some weeks. But don't worry. We're going to make up for it next week with an extra long, supersized, overstuffed episode where I sit down with my friend Dan Reinish, who worked for the CBC in Saskatchewan for a long time. He was in town, and we talked about music. He takes these great rock and roll trips every year. Also, we talked about baseball. We talked about food. We talked about the differences between the U.S. and Canada. It's going to be about 100 minutes of content. So, you know, clear your schedule when that episode launches. And that'll be next time on The Black Cast. The Dennis Miller Show on Westwood One.